Welcome to the Institute for Technology and Network Economics. I'm Bronwyn Howe in New Zealand, and I'm here today with Pietras Pochita in Pretoria, South Africa. And our topic today for our Call and Chain podcast is cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum have hit the headlines recently with their highly volatile um, rates of, of exchange and quest highly questionable use in a whole range of activities. First of all, are they legal? Are they, go are they able to be used for trades across borders? Are they being used by people to conceal uh, illicit trades or movement of goods through the black market economies? But also, on the other hand, they're seen as being a fantastic new instrument to help people who otherwise would not be able to trade, particularly across borders, to continue to do so. So, Petrus, um, what is the story about cryptocurrencies? What actually is a cryptocurrency in its technological sense? Okay, Bronwyn, thank you for that introduction. And I should uh, just comment on what you've said. Um, it's easy. Of course, cryptocurrencies are being used for illicit transactions because cash is as well and other things are. Um, a lot of the things that you said are true, but let me get to your real question. So the question is, what is a cryptocurrency? And the answer is quite simple. A cryptocurrency is a shared ledger. So it's simply a record of transactions having taken place. So if people think of a normal currency like a US dollar, they tend to think of a US dollar bill as something that exists. But in fact, most US dollars are also just entries in a bookkeeping system. So this is a bookkeeping system run by the Federal Reserve, various central banks, commercial banks, um, etc. So it's an entry in a bookkeeping system that uh, has accounts, if you want, and um, those accounts just have um, transactions associated with them. Normally, uh, the cryptocurrency ledger doesn't store uh, totals for each account. It just stores transactions. So it's basically a shared space where transactions take place. So how does that different from, say, uh, and other sorts of digital dollars that might exist? You know, what's different, say, for example, we have um, ledgers that are kept of, say, the digital dollars we've built up in our AirPoints accounts or whatever. What's, what's different between a cryptocurrency and those sorts of digital dollars? So your AirPoint account is actually a very good analogy. Um, and people who somehow think that cryptocurrencies have no value because it's just an entry in a bookkeeping system should consider uh, the air, air miles as uh, an analogy that's um, very, very easily understood and has a clear value or relatively clear value. So the answer is it's not that different except that cryptocurrencies in general uh, do not have a centralized ledger and do not have a ledger that's run by a single authority. So in the case of your air miles, typically the airline runs the reward system and allocates those miles to accounts and all, all of the transactions are authorized centrally by the airline. With the cryptocurrency, typically 
there's a decentralized system for authorizing transactions, and the transactions are more specifically authorized by users uh, deploying their cryptographic key. So they are cryptographically signed. Um, the authority um, taking care of the transactions does in general not have any idea who the users are. So they self-identify using cryptographic uh, key pairs. Um, that's how it happens. And the nice cryptocurrencies have a very well-designed decentralized authorization system. And the main problem with authorization, of course, is if I send you some cryptocurrency, the important thing to check is, first of all, do I actually have it? In other words, um, is it there? And the second thing is to stop me sending the same currency to two different people at the same time. And it's really very, very clever how cryptocurrencies have managed to solve that problem with decentralized protocols. Uh, if you have a centralized authority, of course, it's easy to do this, but you need a lot of computing power. You need to keep it running on, but banks uh, have done that well for a long time. Uh, cryptocurrencies are kind of really robust because this all happens in a decentralized way. And... Um, authorities or entities, so-called miners authorizing the transactions are incentivized to do that work through payments that are inherent in the system. So the growth's organic. So nobody had to sit down and plan Bitcoin. It was just designed from the start so that it can actually just organically grow. So the whole system of the transactions between the ledger accounts, the payments for the activities take place within that same ledger system alongside the values that are moved from A to B. So um, you can actually, in a typical cryptocurrency, uh, create accounts at will. So what we have now termed an account, just to have an analogy to the normal banking system, is a cryptocurrency address. If you control a cryptocurrency address, you have a private key that corresponds to a public key that is published. So it's virtually impossible to derive the private key if you know the public key, but other users can use the public key to recognize your authority if you have signed a transaction, for example. And uh, you can just create these addresses uh, by using a random number generator. So, in fact, most people will find this uh, strange, but you can just declare your Bitcoin address. Now, what does this mean? Um, does it mean that I can just say that your address is mine? No, it doesn't, because you will publish a, a public key which is your address to which you can receive a cryptocurrency. But um, unless I have the private key, which you use to authorize transactions, I can't do anything with it. So, for example, if you want to send me some Bitcoin, I create an address that I know where it is. I give you the public key. You then send the Bitcoin to that and then I can access it if I want to spend that money from my private key, if I then want to send that same Bitcoin to 
total or spend from that Bitcoin total into some other transaction I want to go into. So that is absolutely correct. Um, so what I will have to do is I will send you a cryptocurrency from an address or addresses that I control. So those are addresses for which I have the corresponding private keys. And you are correct that a lot of people will, for the sake of prudence, create a new address every time that they uh, have a received transaction. Of course, if you transfer out of that, that incurs some transaction costs, but uh, for big amounts, it doesn't really matter. And uh, this is actually what I think uh, a fantastic advantage uh, of cryptocurrencies is that every transaction can have a, its own um, address or account number if you want. So you, if you use, um, if you, you properly use the address system in a cryptocurrency, you can completely circumvent the allocation problem in bookkeeping of payments because each payment will just come to a unique address. Right, so that should make it a lot easier to keep track of where things have moved to and from then. So this must create a large, um, a large amount of data showing where all of these various movements of currency have been around in the system. There's some transparency there as, as they're foreseeing what has moved and where it is roughly moved to or from, but only the person who owns the private key is then able to unlock that to get it to move to create another transaction. Yes, so all of the transactions are visible to the public. Uh, most cryptocurrencies have a public ledger, so the ledger anybody can download the ledger and analyze it. So the transactions are there. Of course, uh, you need know absolutely nothing about the persons who um, control specific addresses. So uh, there's no identification system involved in it inherently. But we just know that it has moved. So if we're looking at the, say, the number of times that a, that a, a Bitcoin moves around, then we can see sort of its its frequency of movement, its 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 turn. You know, you can see the movements there and analyze how much movement is happening between general addresses in different places, even though it's not the specific address. Yes. So uh, just to make a small remark about the terminology, so Bitcoin and most cryptocurrencies are fungible. That means that uh, if I create a new address and three entities each send me one Bitcoin, then those Bitcoin are no longer identified in the system. So the transactions are on the record, but the only sense in which I have those Bitcoin is in fact that the total of Bitcoins sent to my public, public key address minus the bitcoins that I sent from it is bigger than zero, mm. uh, but we can't we can't identify. So it's exactly the same as dollars in your bank account. So yes, if yes. I pay $10 into your bank account, uh, that $10 is the same as any other $10 in your account. Now, this question about how these cryptocurrencies can't be double spent, can you explain how 
that's that works in this system because obviously in the air points type situation the air miles um the central we, we trust the airline to make sure that they've got good systems in place to ensure that i can't spend my air points twice and we have to rely on them to ensure that but how does a cryptocurrency ensure that the the digital dollars aren't spent twice so it is pretty good that it can do it. Um, it's not always that fast, but the system is designed not to let it happen. So um, it's easy to check whether that has happened in fact. So uh, participants in the system can check for inconsistencies, but suppose that I have one Bitcoin on my uh, address and I try to send that Bitcoin to two other parties. So I send it to A and I send it to B. Uh, that <coughs> means that I submit transactions signed by my uh, private key for both of those. Now, now one of them would be valid at the time, but if I submit both of them in the system, uh, the system is just designed in such a way that if the first one gets uh, authorized, then the second one will will be rejected. So uh, what you might see, and it's interesting, you might see parts of the system organizing the transfer to A and part of the system organizing the, uh, uh, authorizing the transfer to B. So you could temporarily have two conflicting versions of the ledger coexisting, but the system is designed in such a way that one of them very rapidly uh, dominates. So one of the uh, versions will die out and one, only one of those transactions will survive. It's for that reason that uh, if you have a Bitcoin transaction, many people will say that you wait several blocks until you really accept it in the real world because you want to make sure that there's not a conflicting transaction elsewhere in the system. So to be perfectly clear about it, um, Bitcoin, for example, has a shared public ledger, but the end of that ledger, so where it gets added onto, is always a little bit fuzzy. So it's fuzzy on the scale of a few minutes, so one to 10 minutes. So it can happen that it appears that around you, in a very metaphorical sense, a certain transaction is uh, accepted, Pietro sends one Bitcoin to A, and then it turns out that there's a conflict and the conflict gets resolved in terms of the other transaction, namely Pietro sends one Bitcoin to B. So what people will typically do is they will just wait a little bit for the transaction to become solid. So that's that concept of the blockchain, is it that once it becomes solid and agreed by the various copies of the ledger that they agree in that and solidify that and lock the, the chain in, so each new transaction gets appended onto the chain or each new bunch of transactions gets appended onto the chain as and when the system has come to some sort of consensus as to what that agreed chain is. Mm -hmm. This is correct, yes. And the system can only really be said to agree on the old parts of the chain. So uh, the chain that's, you know, a minute or 10 minutes old, but um, it always happens. 
and uh, the system is just designed like that. And um, there's always this big part that everybody agrees on. So this is a really neat way of doing it because although it takes a little bit longer than a centralized system, uh, it is in place and happens automatically. So um, of course, uh, Bitcoin in this sense is like cash. So uh, if somebody has fraudulently uh, through obtaining your private key authorized the transaction to send those funds somewhere else, there's no way of recovering it. Right. And this is what happened, for example, with Ethereum. Um, was it in 2016 when they had a fraudulent transaction that created a whole lot of uh, basically someone managed to create a transaction that capitalized on some things that weren't quite closed in the system and made, managed to extract a whole lot of value out and double spend a lot of things. Yes. And so, uh, if so memory it, serves me right, that was resolved by uh, most players in the system simply agreeing to reverse those transactions. Now, what this means is it's an action outside the system. So they agreed to roll back certain things. And that can always happen because uh, public ledger is just a computer file. And if it's a computer file shared by 10 million people, those 10 million people can agree just to change it. There's nothing so, physically stopping them. So, so the, these cryptocurrencies, they're a pretty good system. They're, but they're not totally foolproof but they're a great way of being able to move the money across borders without necessarily knowing who the other party is, but just knowing that that person does actually have the funds available to see the transaction and to honour the transaction. And to the best of the cryptographic puzzle activity going on within the system, that tr manages to the best of its ability to be able to keep the whole system in it with integrity. Correct. And it's pretty robust. And if it were not very robust, it would not still be existing. So um, it's pretty quick also. So if you look at an international transaction where you typically have several authorities that have to put their stamp on it, uh, the cryptocurrency is quite competitive in terms of time. Uh, of course, uh, payments on a modern national payment system are definitely quicker, but I would venture to say that uh, modern payment systems do occasionally go down, whereas the cryptocurrencies don't. So they are so decentralized that they simply cannot... Uh, or it is ex if, if the cryptocurrencies go down, everything else goes down. Yes, so this is by comparison because there is no central party controlling the movement across as we have with the banks. There's no ability then to clip the ticket simply because all of the transactions have to go through a single funnel. Effectively, they can go through all these multiple paths to be able to get from A to B whereas the bank transactions across borders must go through the established central banking systems and the movements between currencies, say between the US dollar 
and um, across those transactions across the borders from my bank to your bank across national borders have to go through that filter and that person who controls that at the center can clip the ticket. The distinction is with these cryptocurrencies, they can move around between these parties without any need to go through the center and that changes the the calculus on what the transaction costs are of having that activity take place. So this is correct and there are transaction costs. The transaction costs are however determined by the market if you want. So um, there are transaction costs related to cryptocurrency transactions. Um, users can nominate their transaction cost. It's absolutely theoretically possible to have a transaction with a zero cost go into the system. It's uh, exceedingly unlikely, but it's not impossible. Uh, and it is true that the higher a transaction cost you um, propose if you initiate a transaction, uh, the higher the likelihood that that transaction will go very quickly on the books. So, oh, uh, so I can beat the queue. I don't have to line up at the bank. So you can beat the queue. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And um, speaking of which, just a random thought that occurs to me, it surprises me that nobody, as far as I know, has uh, discussed the issue that your bank, in fact, has a monopoly on payments coming into your account just as your mobile service provider has a monopoly on calls coming into your phone uh, and therefore especially on the international payments can basically just charge what they like. Yes that's exactly what happens but in this one now I, we have freedom to negotiate between each other on or be, between presumably the people proposing the transaction and those who are picking up and doing the transacting on behalf then make their choices with presumably their algorithms as well out of which of all of the transactions available they're going to pick and progress through to the next stage. Yes so for example if you have this double spending issue um, uh, if, if if I were to send the same Bitcoin to two different parties and attach the higher fee to the one transaction, then uh, that transaction is most likely to be the one that wins. Right. Well, that's, that's actually great because, of course, um, market forces in transactions is wonderful um, compared to the um, the queue up and take the the central monopoly you know pay the monopoly fee and the monopoly priorities. So the market determines the order in which they go. So that, they, they can't, this is absolutely they can't correct. be fairer than that, can they? It's a you know, um, classic system. Yeah, so there, there's an element of randomness involved as well. So depending on just what happens uh, or, or outcomes that are very difficult to predict, but things would tend to work so that the higher value transactions or the transactions with the higher uh, fees get approved. So the algorithms work out all of these balances that they can establish at a particular time, what the 
the balance of the supply and demand of transac transactions is, what the likely winning transaction fees are versus the ones that are not going to cut it in this particular round. And it balances that, and that will be dynamic across time. So like an Uber dynamic pricing, it will vary across time depending on how many people are wanting to make transactions. Uh, so the more transactions, of course, the bigger the, con the contest. So therefore, the higher the, the prices will vary around those sorts of activities again, will they? So this is correct. And there is no algorithm, I should uh, emphasize, that runs the whole system in the background. The algorithms all run locally. So it is an order that arises from local activity. So if we consider, for example, the miners who, so-called miners, who prepare the blocks for submission to the system, um, they have an incentive to prepare the block in a good way so that it is accepted by the other players in the system because if their block is accepted, they get the fees. If their block is not accepted, they don't get the fees. So the players have every incentive to behave in as nice a way as possible. So this is where, with these algorithms, it's this combination of game theory and anticipating what the others are going to do against the volumes and all of this balancing that goes on at each of those mining activities to work out which transactions are going to be put forward for the block. Yes. And if, so, if everyone's using the same set of algorithms and the same game theory assumptions, then they'll all come up with roughly the same ordering of what's going to happen for the movement of the block through the system, which is how everyone gets the agreement. And this is basically correct, yes. So um, it's based on everybody running the same all compatible software and the incentives that were really uh, genially conceptualized, I would say. Uh, to make the whole thing run on its own. And the fact that there are no identified parties is actually the strength in the system because you, nobody has a reputation. The fact that nobody has a reputation means that nobody can abuse their reputation for one-time fraud. So everybody has to behave very well all the time. Well, it's, it's wonderful. It's it's the it's one of the ultimate, you know, self-reinforcing governance systems with the incentives all aligned and all compatible. Yes, absolutely. So, so once these systems are up and running and are working remarkably well, then the systems themselves must be quite robust. They definitely are. And so have redundancy, no and redundancy in them as well because they're maintained at many different locations. So there's this no again this, the the absence of reliance on a single central point that might fail is is not as could happen in a banking system doesn't apply in in block in bit in cryptocurrencies in Bitcoin or blockchains. So this is correct. So any part of the network can, in fact, survive. So if the network was somehow cut into two parts, um, unable to communicate henceforth, both parts would just continue functioning. They're forking. This is a yeah. forking. Yes. forking yeah. So the forkings that, that have happened have all been voluntary. But, um, you know, if one part of the planet somehow loses communication with another part, Bitcoin would just 
continue functioning in both parts. Now, uh, the problem would be if the two parts got connected again. Um, in practice, those problems appear on a basis of very, very short time scale. Uh, but if there was a longer time disconnection, like hours or days, uh, you would definitely end up with two new systems, both of which would agree up to the point of separation. But both That's would right. be viable and would continue functioning. Which is what happened to Ethereum after they had their problem, because most of the people using Ethereum were willing to roll back and go, roll the rogue transactions out. And they stayed in the Ethereum system, but those who didn't want to do that forked off and became the Ethereum, Ethereum Classic system. This is correct. This is correct. And I'm glad you remembered the name even because usually there's a very, very clear most popular or majority choice. And the chains like Ethereum Classics are classic is kind of like the Russian Orthodox old believers, you know, very, very few. Yes. So, I mean, that's an interesting analogy, isn't it? That's almost like a faith system here and getting the belief and, and well, having the, the belief and the faith in the system to be able to maintain the integrity rather than having to rely on the clerics. <laughs> Wonderful yes. analogy. Thank you, Beatrice. <laughs> um, are there any downsides? to these cryptocurrencies? I mean, is is there a problem if, for, for example, I forget my private key for my data, for my money in the crypto system? Yes, if you, if you forget your private key, it's just gone. And a lot of this has already happened. So in the old days, uh, people in the first wave of enthusiasm set up mines and uh, managed to accumulate some currency. Uh, then there was a decline in interest. They lost the private keys and those uh, Bitcoin are just gone. So according to some estimates, about one third of the Bitcoin in circulation might be lost because they are sitting on addresses which have had very, very little or, or have not had transactions going on for years already. Um, but yes, so it's a disadvantage if you want to see it like that, uh, you can lose it. Uh, you can also intentionally lose it. This is called burning. So you can destroy your um, Bitcoin or Ethereum by sending it to an address for which nobody has the private key. Um, it's easy to come up with such a thing. You just generate a private key compute the public key corresponding to it, throw away the private key, and then send your money to that address, and then it's gone. And this is kind of interesting. So it's hard to distinguish. In fact, it's impossible to distinguish between a person putting cryptocurrency into an address uh, for long-term storage and a person literally destroying it. Say my bank account didn't move for, you know, had no movements in it for a period of time, my bank could just decide that it was a dead account and take whatever's left and, and put it to their own consolidated account. That can't happen in Bitcoin. The, the amount just sits there forever until the person either remembers that or 
or no acknowledges that they made a decision to get rid of it. Yes, it so, just sits there. So uh, how does how do these systems actually maintain the supply of currency in the system? The total numbers of Bitcoin that are available, how they get generated. So that's normally built into the system on Bitcoin, for example. Um, there was an initial allocation. That's usually the case in the so-called Genesis block. That's the first block in the blockchain. Allocate some currency typically to the founders um, or to addresses controlled by the founders. And then from that point onward, um, in Bitcoin, for example, uh, we steadily still have new Bitcoin being created through the mining process. So the algorithm allocates some Bitcoin to successful miners of blocks. So the block miners, so the people who authorize blocks of transactions, get rewarded by the transaction fee plus some additional fee. So that creates new Bitcoin, that process. But that will continue still for a number of years until it reaches the limit. So the total number of Bitcoin in, in, in circulation is in fact capped in the system. So that's a choice that's made by the people who set up the cryptocurrency at the beginning. First of all, how yes. much of it is going to be to start with and then how much is minted or created or mined or whatever from that point onwards and that is all determined in the software itself. There's no way that someone can create a whole bunch of new currency like might happen for example with quantitative easing with the with the banks that they'll suddenly you know print a whole bunch more money or put out a new debt instrument or something to create an increase in the, the amount in supply. That doesn't happen with a cryptocurrency as can happen with a fiat currency. So this is correct because the unauthorized creation of money would simply be an invalid transaction on the ledger. So somebody could submit a transaction that um, allocates non-existent Bitcoin from a public address to another public address, but that will simply not be um, accepted. Um, and how this is self-regulated is very simple. So nobody has an incentive to allow it because everybody is kind of equal in the system. So if one party could do it, everybody could do it, and then it would be minutes until the system falls apart. So there's no manipulation, for example, as we see by governments and reserve banks playing around with the amount in circulation to achieve other objectives. No, and no. governments and reserve banks can kind of only do that because it's partly obscured. Um, otherwise, it won't really work. Whereas in the, the, the cryptocurrency world, the transactions are all visible. The rules and the methods or the, the algorithms by which the new currency is minted is transparent. It's known to all people who participate. So there are no surprises like that, that that will come out of the woodwork as things move along. It will be the the supply of currency is well known and that should assist with people um, 
making making decisions about how much the cryptocurrency is worth, for example, when they want to exchange it for, say, one cryptocurrency for another cryptocurrency or for a fiat currency, that should make it much more predictable if that volume is well known. So this is absolutely true. And um, if I can give you an example, the system is so transparent and open that auditing is, in fact, a breeze. Uh, you might have read about the scandal with the German payments firm Wirecard uh, that managed for several years to somehow be um, untruthful about billions of dollars supposedly sitting in Philippine bank accounts that the auditors also somehow missed. Uh, now, if I wanted to audit the company's assets, uh, if the company worked entirely on Bitcoin, it would be very simple. I would just say, give me a list of your public addresses that you have the private keys for. I would compute the totals on the private key on, on, on those public addresses from the blockchain, which is an open, open and public document. And then I would just ask the uh, firm to send me $1 from each of those addresses to prove that it actually owns them. That would also be my fee. And then I have a, a, a balance statement for that firm on Bitcoin. So uh, it needn't take more, need not take more than a few minutes. Right. So this is, again, one of the big advantages over the banking systems is just the transparency. The issue about the identity of the people who are doing the transacting, this is something that has become an issue with banking regulators, particularly in you know your customer rules that apply in the traditional banking system. The problem that one would have with a system where you knew the amounts that were moved, you knew the addresses that it moved from, but you didn't have certainty over who the person was controlling those addresses, leads to a problem where potentially these cryptocurrencies could be used for money laundering. What is the situation in countries where they've got the know your customer requirements? Are, are cryptocurrency operators required in most jurisdictions to meet? these same requirements as the banks to ensure that that risk of money laundering is minimized? So it varies a lot and it really only applies when you have companies providing services involving cryptocurrencies because Bitcoin is just software sitting on servers. So you cannot compel Bitcoin to do anything. And in fact, you cannot also you cannot control Bitcoin transactions. So you unless you have a very, very sophisticated system blocking certain kinds of network traffic, uh, you cannot stop a person A from making a Bitcoin transfer to person B because all it involves is software that can be freely downloaded and some mathematics. So there's no central central party involved that can be compelled. So who can be compelled is the cryptocurrency exchanges and companies providing other cryptocurrency related services. For example, just storing your cryptocurrency for you in a wallet 
on which they might be prepared to take care of your private key for you and provide it to you if you turn up and show them your face. There's nothing preventing that kind of service. But these companies are regulated. Um, they are regulated differently um, as with uh, some other things, but strangely not bank accounts. By far the strictest regulation appears to be in the United States. So many companies uh, providing crypto-related services will not do it for U.S. customers. Um, generally, uh, Switzerland is quite good. So uh, as with normal banking and money, Switzerland has relatively liberal and clear um, regulations. The EU in general does. Uh, the EU is relatively liberal, so it allows, in fact, exchanges to provide um, exchange services for fiat currency uh, up to a certain monthly limit without going through a complete KYC process. Uh, if you want to go over that, you have to KYC. But this is this is exchanges where you can exchange euro or dollars for cryptocurrency. So there is a KYC issue, but you can have a crypto uh, balance on a blockchain without any KYC whatsoever. If you have somebody um, prepared to give you the cryptocurrency. There is, in fact, an interesting case uh, that appeared in July involving a very privacy-oriented cryptocurrency called Monero. Um, so there was a ransomware attack on uh, Telecom Argentina, and uh, the attackers demanded $7.5 million to be paid in Monero. Uh, I'm not sure what the outcome was, but that's a kind of typical event. So they will ask for that money to be paid to a public address to which they have the private keys. Um, $7.5 million would be kind of a lot to exchange on Monero for fiat currency if that's what they want. But what you can typically do in a case like that is exchange it on some exchange very slowly for Bitcoin so that it doesn't exceed certain limits. Not that I've tried it because I'd have better things to do with seven and a half million dollars. Um, but uh, you can do that. So, so for that kind of thing, there's no KYC. But if these ransomware attackers wanted to exchange that money for fiat currency, so for ordinary money, they would run into KYC issues unless they did were careful about which countries they used and exchanged it for fiat currency very slowly. So it's the movements in or out of the cryptocurrencies that are the ones that can be tracked, not the actual movements on the blockchain that runs the cryptocurrency itself. Track to a person. Um, of course, if you if you do advanced data analysis and you have some information about the person, then you will be able to do some tracking of real exchanges on the blockchain. And that has been done by the authorities and it has now no doubt also been done by criminal elements uh, because there is usually some kind of trail outside the blockchain to the address. I mean, if I give you my public address, I might do it on the email. Okay, so then there's a trail leading the, the, back to me. 
So in essence, if you want to be, there's no way of being really anonymous um, completely. But so therefore the, um, the arguments that cryptocurrencies are the wild west doesn't have to be that way. We, there can be the creation of processes at the exchanges that can track the movements in and out of fiat currencies. So these need not become wild wests and but still be able to maintain the level of um, the decentralized level of activity without having to prove everyone is well known uh, everyone is known at each point. No, no, so absolutely. There's it, there's no system that will be entirely foolproof as long as there are humans who have a will or the capacity to try and find a way around a system. Fiat currencies aren't foolproof, neither can we expect uh, cryptocurrencies to be entirely foolproof in that respect either. No, not at all. And I think it's a, there's a confusion here between uh, features and bugs. So uh, you do not want... It would be kind of bad not to have some kind of means of payment which is untraceable. Of course, we can think as well about, you know, the movement of value in things like gold, you know, gold ingots and whatever, to be able to move value anonymously between people without having to have a track on systems in this, in, like in the banking system of knowing your customer and whatever. There's always going to be ways around that. We've always had them in the physical world. That hasn't changed in the crypto world. But the crypto world does actually provide us with perhaps some better mechanisms for creating a, a trail that can be followed. This is correct. And uh, one thing we should also keep in mind is that KYC is in fact expensive for banks. And this is one reason why, especially in the developing world, there are so many people without bank accounts because the KYC and other uh, anti-money laundering legislation compliance on the bank account, my understanding is that costs in the region of maybe two, three or five US dollars a month per customer. Um, it's really, really expensive for banks to maintain those reports and those standards. So cryptocurrency um, gets, uh, gets around the money problem there. That's, it's a problem of cost, not a problem of uh, Ill illegitimacy or, or criminal behavior. It's simply expensive to have a bank account. Right, so this is why cryptocurrencies are seen to be a wonderful new way of enabling the unbanked people to be able to now transact across with each other and also across um, uh, national boundaries. Yes, so I think unfortunately that revolution has not completely uh, taken place. Um, I have my eye on countries like Zimbabwe or Argentina where there's a lot of monetary instability. Um, as far as I know, um, it's not become very commonplace in either of these countries. Um, there's a lot of activity now in Argentina as there was in Venezuela at a point where people are basically using cryptocurrency to circumvent uh, exchange regulations. 
So this is not uh, for criminal purposes. I mean, it's technically criminal to um, violate those currency exchange regulations, but it's not criminal in any natural sense. So these are not normal criminals. They are, these are simply people wishing to move their money out of the country. Well, once again, it's a great example of competition. Um, we've now got competition for the fiat currencies in the crypto world and vice versa. And obviously, whenever there is competition, the consumers will move to the ones that best suit their needs at the most cost effective package. So we would expect to see if these become much more commonplace that we would see the movement away from the fiat currencies towards using cryptocurrencies. So far, Abs though, we haven't seen a lot of that movement. Why is that? So absolutely, um, I'm not 100% sure about the reason. So it could be that the national payment systems are simply too efficient, fast and cheap uh, for the classical buying of the coffee with cryptocurrency, which I have done and many people have done, but it's not a very commonplace thing. Uh, what you do find in that respect is in some places, people are paying by exchanging um, cryptocurrency amounts between wallets on exchanges. So in that sense, it's a kind of inter-exchange transfer, which is really like a transfer between accounts in the same bank. And we can talk for a long time about that. I don't want to get bogged down into in, in it. Um, so the other reason is that um, it's perhaps the case that the cryptocurrencies simply existing is enough to make the rest of the system adapt and behave better. So this, as we know from other industries, is where competition at the margin is very important. And it's completely possible that the cryptocurrencies will simply provide competition and inspiration at the margin without ever taking over the banking system, but nevertheless make be responsible for a lot of positive changes. Right. Well, I think that's a very important point that if we see these things as not being substitutes, but complements in a world where people can choose the one that best suits their purpose, and we will see these evolving over time. So Absolutely. thank you very much. That's um, been very informative. I've learned a lot from that. Um, and we look forward to our next exchange that we have on Call and Chain. Thank you, Bronwyn. And I just remind listeners that you can find us on iTunes and other places where podcasts are and on the Institute website, www.itne.eu. Thank you, Bronwyn.